Hello there. I'm re-recording um, the sermon from last Sunday, uh, the fifth, our, our first Sunday back, and I'm doing it because uh, our technology failed, um, so the audio um, process uh, didn't work. But what I'm talking about this morning comes primarily from the book of Hebrews, around about chapter 10. I'll reflect a little bit on the verses for before that, and it's 976 in the Pew Bibles. Um, my theme this morning is gathering together as we welcome the church back into, uh, into the building. Um, why do we gather? Uh, obviously, there's some optimism from some uh, to come back. Uh, there's some optimism from others to keep being able to gather uh, far away for all sorts of reasons. Some just expediency. Uh, others geography and various things but I, I want us to look biblically at why it's important um, in scripture for for God's people to gather uh, we're from a very different formation to the formation of uh, the early church folks uh, we, we point at the individual and we can do that because we've created all sorts of uh, individualizing capacity uh, telephones, computers, etc., etc., and nowhere is it is is this seen more completely at the moment um, than the USA, where their whole constitution is built around the individual and the individual's freedom. Whether it's uh, you know to own a gun or go to the beach in the middle of a global pandemic, um, there's this sense of how dare you to to check or question my individual right. To, um, to be self-determining and to do what I think's right. But the thought of individual responsibility, being responsible for oneself purely as an individual in Jesus' day, is just non-existent. It's just not there. It probably couldn't afford to be there, as you think about it, because the individual always operated in extended units. Obviously, a family first, the village, the region, Galilee, Judea, um, Samaria, uh, separate region. They are inseparable. Uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we can actually see this in action. So if you take John chapter 9, which is this lovely story of a man uh, who was born blind, well known to people, his family's present, and um, Jesus heals him, and uh, there's this lovely kind of banter goes on with this man and the Pharisees as uh, they question him being healed on the Sabbath. How dare he? And um, it's interesting because one of the Pharisees' uh, initial questions when they hear about this is who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You get not an individual responsibility, but this sense of corporate responsibility within the family um, for his circumstance. Now, we wouldn't agree that uh, either he or his family were responsible for him being born blind, but you can see this corporateness of responsibility. Uh, then we move to Mark chapter 3, which is an interesting passage because Jesus' family have um, come down to Capernaum to basically take charge of Jesus, who um, the authorities and some people are accusing of being essentially out of his mind. But it's the whole family um, that come down uh, to take charge of him. Why? Well, 
he and they are regarded as one and uh, his behavior is essentially their behavior if it's uh, a shame it's shaming them uh, as well as shaming him so we see the corporate nature of things in the new uh, the new testament so rather than being an independent society it was a completely interdependent society and it worked sort of morally and ethically not just uh, practically it wasn't just practical stuff it was the identity uh, of the family whether they were being uh, you know shamed uh, was fundamental now the people of God the broader people uh, the Hebrews uh, they had one key uh, identifying um, feature um, or, or, or way of illustrating that, that they were a people and that was the Sabbath so essentially the thing that identified them as Hebrews within the nation within the region within the family was a gathering they gathered on Shabbat as it's called every Jew did the whole nation did this is what identified them as a people in uh, that same story uh, about the man born blind in John chapter 9 uh, the Pharisees sort of just randomly accused Jesus and they say this man is not from God why because he doesn't keep the Sabbath so to be from God was identified with keeping of the Sabbath. To not keep the common day of gathering meant you were declaring, I'm not one of you. That's how important uh, the identification in a gathering was. It's interesting in the old city of Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon, you see Jewish men mostly with their, their locks and their hats and whatnot running hither and thither what are they doing they're getting from wherever they've been to wherever that they should be before sundown why to keep uh, the sabbath to keep shabbat together and uh, i looked on a website i thought i wonder what they actually do on shabbat today and i found this um interesting website myjewishlearning.com my Jewish learning fascinating and so comprehensive and today uh, the Hebrew people if they were to gather uh, if, if, if it was Shabbat I should say they would gather in homes sometimes in synagogues but here are the elements one gathering everyone is there two celebration it's a gathering that unites the people of people under God. Three, we eat food. It's enjoyable, but it also talks about origins, uh, traditions, and the stories are embedded in the food and the type of food we eat and when we eat it uh, within the Shabbat meal. Uh, fourthly, uh, live. So gather, celebrate, eat, live. Uh, care how do we care for one another is fundamental to gathering uh, fifthly quite fascinatingly mourn how do we mourn together and share loss together 
the last two would make sense because they're prayer and study. But prayer and study are part of gathering, celebrating, eating, living and suffering and mourning together. The Bible declares that you shall be one as I am one, God says. And this gathering is celebrating in all its diversity of life um, the unity and the oneness of people as they come together and declare that. So it's even built into creation. Um, the seventh day was the day of Shabbat, built in so fundamentally that God's people should gather. So it's not optional. If you're one of us, this is what you do. And if you don't do this, uh, you're not one of us. Now, that was the foundation of the early Christian church. The first Christians were Jews. They kept Shabbat. They kept Saturday, which was that uh, sanctified day of rest. But the early Christians, who were also Jews, also met together, probably after work on Sunday, because Sunday was a normal work day. So these gatherings carried similar attributes to Shabbat. There was singing, celebration, food, bread and wine, scripture, prayer, the dispersion of resources to orphans and widows, care. So those elements were, were, were done in all manner of different ways. So if you're a Baptist, you're right. If you're an Anglican, you're right. Um, it's not about that. But for the Jews, Shabbat carried a sense of waiting. We're still waiting for the coming of Messiah, for the consummation of the rule and reign of God. But for Christians who would gather on this Sunday afternoon and do similar sorts of things, um, they were no longer waiting. And a first century... Um, writer, and what's known as an apologist, whose name is Justin Martyr, uh, wrote this. He says, but Sunday is the day uh, we hold our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, basically God having created, this is how he says it, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. That's the first thing. That's why we gather on Sunday, because God made the world and Jesus Christ, our Saviour, on the same uh, day rose from the dead. Creation, God's uh, original purpose involved gathering and celebrating what God had done in creation and the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. It wasn't about waiting, it was about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, which happened on Sunday. That's when it happened. That's when he rose from the tomb. So that's why we gather. What does it do? Well, it's just assumed in the New Testament that people will gather. All Paul's letters, if they're not specifically written to an individual, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, etc., they're uh, written to people who are gathered. The word church is actually a gathering of people. Ecclesia means people gathered together. 
in one place. It has nothing to do with a building. So then if we move forward again to scripture to have a look at this um, notion of gathering um, in Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is an interesting book, as all books of scripture are interesting, because it's talking to gathered Christians, Hebrew Christians, who are spread across Asia Minor, Turkey, effectively today. And what it's declaring is we're no longer waiting. Now the Messiah, the Christ, has come. And we gathered in a certain way uh, uh, before the Messiah, but now you Christians who are struggling and suffering, these are the things I want to remind you of, and this is what we do about them. So that's what's going on in Hebrews. These are the things I want to remind you of, and this is what uh, we do about them. So what did the writer to the Hebrews want to remind them of? He wanted to remind them, one, and fundamentally that Jesus is better, the one who's comes better. He's better than the angels in chapter 1, and I'm just flicking through. He's better than Moses. Uh, he will give us a better rest. Um, he is the better, the perfect great high priest. Um, he fulfills God's promise better uh, and, and fully. Uh, he's the mediator of a better covenant. He gives a better covenant. Um, and the sanctuary, the temple, he is uh, and the new temple and he is better than anything that the Old Testament was or did. So that's the flow up to chapter 10 that I want us to look at, uh, look at now. In chapter 10, um, if you're with me here, because I'm looking at it, Verse 1, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. Can you see there's this shadow and then Christ is the fulfilment. There was this, now there's the best, the better thing. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities. Okay, so there's the statement. Shadow, not the true form. Move on to verse 5. When Christ came into the world, and then it goes on to explain how Christ is better, now move on with me to verse 9 and the second half of it. You see what I'm doing? I'm getting the headlines on the way through. He, Christ, abolishes the first order to establish the second order. And then he goes on to explain uh, this second order. So it says in verse 11, I know we're going quickly, stay with me. In verse 11, day after day, every priest, this is in the old order, stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice and those same sacrifices effectively don't work. They can never take away sin which is the big problem. Then if you move down to verse 14, but Jesus, the one perfect sacrifice, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So who is Jesus making perfect? Those who are being made holy. Who's being made holy? Us. So, 
if we're answering the question, what does gathering do? Gathering is a celebration of this incomprehensible fact that Jesus died. This is uh, in another place. Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God? No. To bring us to God corporately. So as we gather, there's the celebration essentially of this heavenly host of human beings declared holy because of what Christ has done. Gathering as a throng and as we come closer and closer to Jesus, we're, we're, we, become, we come closer and closer to each other as we move in this direction. Excuse the hand in front of the, in front of the screen there. So corporate events require a corporate, a gathered response. And then as we go on, we see all the things as this group of fledgling Christians in Asia Minor are suffering and struggling. Remember, they've all been displaced and cast adrift for all sorts of reasons. What does this gathering do? You can see how they need to come back together to be reminded of what's been done for them. So in verse 19, and I'm just going to rattle these off. You follow through in the text. Um, when, when they're gathered, it gives them confidence to enter into this new and living way. They, they encourage each other in that. It gives them confidence to celebrate the new and living way. It illuminates Jesus, who is the great high priest. Um, and so, quote, we draw near to God together. So you can see the gathering is a place where all those things are happening. And what do we bring to the gathering? Well, we bring sincerity of heart as we go on in the text. We bring assurance of faith. That's what the gathering does. Um, when we corporately particularly confess our sins, we're cleansed of conscience and reminded of our baptism and what happened there. And together this sweeps up into what's described as an unswerving hope that we ultimately have together, even as we suffer and are dispersed in difficult times. So gathering reassures us. It's a celebration of Jesus taking our place to bring us to God. It draws us near. Our hearts are touched. Our faith is kindled and renewed. We're reminded that we're clean are cleansed and it's an exhortation to hold on to our hope that's why we gather and only gathering ultimately can do that so what if, as i close a few dangers in not gathering well basically all those things um are kind of jeopardized and corroded if we don't gather if we isolate um in the christian life there's absolutely no biblical precedent for a Christian life lived in isolation. Sure, sometimes it happened, and it was incredibly, incredibly dif difficult. The exhortation is always to gather. Hebrews 10 goes on. Have a look at verse 24. And let us consider, verse 24 says, how we may spur one another on towards love 
and good deeds. So we're supposed to be spurring one another on. Now, love takes place in community. It's very hard to love anything or anyone in isolation. Encouraging or spurring one another on takes place in community. These Hebrew Christians were under pressure and they're encouraged to gather to love and to spur one another on. Interestingly, the exhortation in verse 25 is to not uh, give up meeting together, which seems to be a problem that, quote, some have fallen into the habit of doing. But gathering and encouraging one another, you can't do that very well from the living room, and all the more as you see the final day approaching. That is, that day when Jesus returns is going to be one great and glorious gathering. The danger of not gathering is that we too easily just reference life against ourselves. We become our own version of Lord. We make our own rules. We consume what we like. I make the judgments. I even suffer alone. I deprive others of the chance to love me and share good deeds on me. And I never have to face myself or truly sacrifice for another. It's tempting, particularly when we're tired and particularly uh, when we feel sort of overwhelmed by circumstances. I was so encouraged on Sunday that a very, very mature Christian came to me and said, I didn't want to be here today. But I knew for the sake of love and spurring one another on um, that my absence speaks and I need to be here. So why gather? We are one as God is one. God's three persons, but still one. We are many people, but we're one as we gather under the Lordship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's why we gather. What does it do? It unites us in Christ, one to the other, and together we look to him. If we avoid it, we deprive others of what we bring. We deviate towards isolation which has no place in Scripture. So just some thoughts to consider and a timely, um, what would you call it, exhortation, particularly as we begin uh, to resume meeting together. Bless you.